Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Science at the Theater's Seeing the Light, sponsored by Friends of Berkeley Lab. My name is Jeff Miller, and I'm head of public affairs at Berkeley Lab. Uh, tonight's event is the first of three Science at the Theater presentations scheduled for this fall, three weeks from tonight, Monday, October 3rd. We will be here again for What's Right with Kansas. That evening will feature the founder of excuse me, Kansas's Climate and Energy Project, which is an environmental organization that has had great success changing energy efficiency behaviors in one of the nation's most conservative states. We also will be debuting our video about CEP's work, which we shot in Kansas last June. On November 7th, uh, we will have a, a panel of Berkeley Lab scientists here again, revealing the secrets of the soil and the relevance of those secrets to climate change and future energy supplies. Uh, now back to tonight. Um, we thought that any discussion entitled Seeing the Light needed to begin with a discussion about the clarity of light itself. So we will leave that assignment to the uh, director of the Advanced Light Sorts, Roger Falcone, immediately to my left, who will serve as our moderator for this evening. And while their topics differ, uh, tonight's panel of scientists, Rachel Siegelman, Andrew Westfall, and Axel Brunger, share one common practice. They have all used the beam lines at the Advanced Light Source at Berkeley Lab for their research. Uh, as always, there will be a question and answer period that follows the presentations. Please remember to keep your questions specific and short, and the microphone stands are here and here. Uh, lastly, I'm going to ask those who are here for the first time to please raise your hand. Uh, we have a few. Great. Glad to see you. Welcome. Um, if you have not picked up the audience uh, survey cards, please do so from one of our volunteers and fill it out. It's really important. Uh, with that, I will introduce now uh, Roger Falcone. Uh, he turn the podium over to him, and please give him a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you all for coming tonight. I decided there were three things that you should know to take away tonight. And those three things are what it is we do, why it's unique, and why it's important. Okay? And, I, and I hope you can leave with those, those three ideas. Okay? So what is it that we do? Well, we, the scientists here, myself, and the staff at Lawrence Berkeley Lab at the Advanced Light Source run a major user facility, a Department of Energy user facility, and I'll tell you what that means. What we do is we produce extremely powerful beams of X-ray light. Now, I think you know a little bit about X-rays. You go to the doctor's office, and a doctor uses X-rays to take a shadow graph of your tooth to find a cavity or looks for a broken bone underneath the skin. And so you know that X-rays allow you to see underneath or inside objects. We're pretty used to, to, to light with our, with our vision, but light is an, a visible light. That part of the spectrum is an extremely limited part of what we call the electromagnetic spectrum that comprises all of light. If you take your hand and you put it close to your cheek, you could do that. Why don't you just put it there? But keep your eyes closed. You can feel the heat. What are, your feel, what, your, what are you feeling? You're feeling the infrared light that's coming off of your hand, the glow of your hand on your cheek. 
It's invisible. You can't see it, but you know it's there. So that's one part of the electromagnetic spectrum that you can't see, but it's there. If you go to the other end of the electromagnetic spectrum and you think about x-rays, you can't see those either. But if a doctor puts your hand on top of a plate or your body and takes a picture of you, you know that x-rays penetrate through you and can reveal what's inside. What we do is we make extremely powerful beams of x-rays, things that are a million times more intense than what would be in a doctor or a dentist's office, and we use that for science. We do it at the Advanced Light Source Lawrence Berkeley Lab, the iconic dome, which is up there on top of the hill. That's us, okay? I hope you can come and visit uh, in the lab open house because we'll have it all open for you to see. But that dome is where my machine, our machine is. It's been working for about 18 years there. Okay, so that's the first question. What is it we do? We make powerful beams of x-rays and we do science and we're going to hear some great examples. The second thing is why is that unique? It's unique because we are the best, undeniably the best, source of what are called soft x-rays. These are not really hard x-rays because they're soft, okay? But what they are 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 chemically, they can be tuned to certain chemicals, to actually to any chemical, and so we can look with chemical specificity at what is underneath there. If I take a picture of my bones for a broken bone, all I do is get a shadow graph. But if I took soft x-rays, the kind we have at the advanced light source, I could tell you what the bone is made out of. What's the chemistry of that bone? And that's very important and very unique. We also make, we use this machine as a microscope, so it's a chemically specific microscope. That's what makes us unique, a chemically specific microscope. And we'll hear examples of that. And the third thing is why is it important? Well, we do all sorts of science. We're very, very important to new energy technologies. We work on batteries, solar cells, fuel cells, combustion systems. You'll hear about a piece of that tonight. Come to the ALS at Open House and you'll hear more about it. Maybe the most important thing, and I'm going to leave you with this idea, is that we are a national user facility. We are paid for by the Department of Energy, by your tax dollars, okay? But we are inherently a democratic facility. And what that means is we're open to all. People from all over the country, all over the world, apply to work at our facility. They send us applications. We send it out for peer review. And the best of those proposals, about a third of them, we accept, and those people come and they work with the scientists at our facility. It enables all sorts of work that otherwise wouldn't get done. People from institutions, from universities, colleges, companies, other national labs, where they don't have machines like this. They can't afford machines like this, but we make them available in a democratic way. It's a meritocracy, to be sure, but that's what we do, okay? And that's why it's important. The ideas are important, the research we're doing, important, but the next idea is the most important thing, and the fact that we can enable that is very, very important. Okay, so three things, what we do, why it's unique, and why it's important. You can ask about it at the end if you have more questions, but I'd like to welcome Rachel up and to tell you uh, about her very important science. Thank you very much. So I'm Rachel Siegelman. I am a professor of chemical engineering at UC Berkeley. I'm a user of ALS. 
So what that means is that, as Roger said, we write proposals to do our science on the light source. And I thought I would tell you a little bit about what our science is and where the light source plays a role in it. So I'm very interested in renewable energy, and particularly in making plastics that play into the renewable energy game. So some of you may have seen a pie like this before. And my pointer kind of works up there, if you can see it. Um, you may know that the vast majority, about 80% of the energy we use in this country, comes from fossil fuels. There is a piece of the pie, about 8%, that's nuclear energy. And then about 7% nationally comes from renewable energies. This is the portion that California is trying to blow up to 20% in the near future. But this is from the national pie. And what you see is that it's, this renewable piece is broken out of a large number of different sources. And this is something of a requirement now. We're not good enough at any of these to be able to get a large portion from them. And one of the smallest portions is actually solar, even though you hear a lot about it from scientists like me who are very excited in the news, etc. And one of the reasons you hear so much about it is that the potential is massive. So you're seeing this 10 to the 16th. That's the amount of solar radiation that hits the Earth that could be used, right? We use it for growing plants. We use it for doing a lot of other things. Um, electricity is four orders of magnitude smaller, meaning it's a much, 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 much smaller piece of that total amount of energy hitting the Earth. And we could easily get a larger fraction of our energy from solar. So it seems like a great place to build in on. But as many of you know, one of the reasons we don't have a lot of solar is that right now solar is somewhat expensive, and it's actually fairly hard to install. How many people have solar cells on the roof of your house? How much was the solar cell, and how much was the infrastructure necessary to get it on the roof of your house? Right? Usually, you, in this part of the country, you have to um, reinforce your roof to withstand the weight of the solar cell. Right? There are a lot of applications where what we would like is to have a solar cell that looks a little bit like saran wrap where you could, say, unroll it on the roof of your house. I'll show you a bunch of applications in a second. But the, um, the other advantage of making it look like saran wrap is that we could make it like you make saran wrap. Saran wrap looks, in production, a lot like newspaper. I mean, you can make these giant infinite rolls of it. You can print on each layer after another one, um, sell it in giant spools, and unroll it as you need it. Right? That would be fantastic. And this stuff is actually made by Canarca. Um, and many of you may have actually seen it. This is what their cell looks like. It plugs in right there. They sell this one to charge iPods. Right? So you have it rolled up in your backpack. You take it out. You plug it into your iPod. This is on an umbrella. Um, this is actually outside their own facility. So it could power, for instance, um, chargers in the outlet here. This is a neat application. This is the windows of a building where it, um, it poses it. it allows them to do two things. One is they use it to um, absorb some of the light as it's coming in, so it does less heating of the building. It also generates a little bit of extra energy. Right? This is the one most of you may have seen. This is a bus stop in San Francisco. Um, there are a bunch of bus stops now that have these red roofs. Most of them now have a solar cell on top. The energy from the solar cell is used to power the display inside. Um, the display inside can show you the map of the upcoming bus. It can also allow you to play games on it. Um, it's a neat application. This is my favorite. Someday I will convince my husband to buy me a $500 bag, and this is what I want. Um, <laughs> I haven't succeeded yet. Uh, this is a plastic solar cell on the outside of a laptop bag. And therefore, when you're walking around outside, you can recharge your phone, you can recharge your laptop. Right? It seems like a great application for me. Um, Maybe I won't need my car charger. So this is a great application. Now, you're seeing two big things that came out from both this and all of these. 
The first is that this required a flexible, lightweight solar cell. There was no way you're going to take around the silicon solar cells we have in the roofs of our houses this way because they're too heavy and they're too delicate. Right? So you could carry these around, and they're durable, and they're lightweight. That's the plus. The minus is the fact that you notice none of these are actually plugged into the power grid. These are all for basically niche applications, generating a little bit of electricity to power your iPod, to um, power display in the bus stop. My group is still working through the math of whether or not this could actually display, power the entire display in the bus stop. And the reason is that the, at very best, these work at 2 to 3% efficiency, the ones that Canarchus sells. The ones that the very best people in the world can make in lab are in the order of 10%, at the very, very best. Right? And that means that we could not make them in production that way. So what many of us are interested in is what could we do to make these so that they have higher efficiency? Silicon operates in the lab at 40% and in production at 10 Right? So what can we do to make these guys as good as silicon? Um, so part of that requires us to think a little bit about how they work. And really where my passion is, is, is there a way that we can make them better? So I thought I'd show you a little bit about how these work. So normally what we do is we take two electrodes. These are metals. This one's transparent. And we shine light on them. The light makes something that's called an exciton. The exciton is the two charges you need to make electricity. But they're bound together. So this exciton wanders around looking for some way to separate. It wanders around for about 10 nanometers until it finds an interface. The interface helps pull that electron off, and then the two charges go in opposite directions to be collected. And collecting those charges is your electricity. Right? So what you want to do is to get as many of those absorbed as possible, and as many of them separated as possible, and then as many of them out as possible. Right? So you've got this whole pathway. Now, the problem and the challenge from my perspective is that the thickness here is kind of interesting. We want this to be only as thick as it takes to absorb light, right? Because otherwise we're wasting material and we have trouble getting charges out. We can absorb light in these kinds of materials for about 100 nanometers, right? And I told you a second ago that the amount of space that this thing could diffuse around, could move around, was about 10 nanometers. So that means that I have to be able to pattern things on a 10 nanometer length scale, and, oh, by the way, the structure of this interface and the sizing is going to be really important because that tells me how efficiently I'm going to be able to pull apart those charges, right? So all of this is going to happen on the 10 to 100 nanometer length scale. So a lot of the rest of my talk is going to be talking about how do we control on this length scale? Um, a human hair is on the order of 50 microns thick, so it's all the way out here. When you hear about microchips, the micro really means micron, which is 10 to the minus 6 meters. It's out here. So your silicon chips in your computers are patterned out this way. We use light to pattern those. Um, and where you think about chemistry, where I can make bonds, is down at an angstrom. And everything I care about for this plastic electronic is right here. So it's in a kind of nasty length scale in between that I can't access by doing chemistry to make materials. And I can't access in any way I know how to push, pull, or even shine light to rearrange things. Right? So it's, a, it's an interesting challenge from that perspective. So we can't touch it or see it. We have to convince it to do what we want, and then we have to use something, in this case ALS, to help us figure out what it actually looks like, because it's much smaller than anything I can see. Right? So I'm going to use x-rays to see it. So first I'll talk about how we make it. We do a lot of self-assembly, which is basically that we're using interactions between the objects in our material to get it to assemble. I can't touch it, and I can't force it to do anything, but can I design my molecule so it'll do what it wants? Um, sometimes I give this talk in front of um, 
child audiences, so high school students, middle school students. My favorite example of self-assembly is penguins, because um, if you put penguins on an ice sheet, they want to pack in to stay warm, but they don't want to crowd each other too much, right? So they'll pack in that, that, that not wanting to crowd each other too much is a repulsive force, and wanting to stay warm is the attractive force, and the balance between these means that they form these perfect little hexagonal clusters, right? Um, my children's favorite example is this one. If you cut up hot dogs and you float them on a sheet of water, they will also pack into a little hexagonal network, right, like you can see here. Um, again, attractive repulsive forces. I clearly don't do my work with hot dogs. What we do is um, we make polymers. Polymers are long molecules. Think of them as a string of spaghetti, but that's what our chemistry is. This is very similar chemistry that makes any kind of plastic you use from your recyclable water bottles on down. Um, we play some tricks with these so that we make them have these attractive repulsive interactions so they self-assemble. They self-assemble on the same length scale as a molecule, which is about 10 nanometers. And that's how we get control over this length scale. So to give you an example, what we might do is make this device that um, is now a patterned material that has patterns on the order of 10 nanometers. How we do it is we make a polymer that has a red half and a blue half. The red half wants to stay with red. The blue half wants to be separated from the red. And that helps us make stripes that self-assemble by themselves. And I don't have to do anything to it. So um, that gives us 10 nanometer late scale, late, late scale domain control. And then we have to do a lot of careful characterization to understand what the connectivity was like. Right? Are the stripes really running this way, which is probably what we want, and not this way, which doesn't help us get charges out? So this is the kind of molecule we might make. This is a blue half. This half actually absorbs the light. And this half helps us pull the electrons off and send them out of the device. So we make the two halves of things we want in our photovoltaic. And then we have the structure help us get the charges in and out. Um, and then we have to take it to the advanced light source because we need to figure out what we've made. And now it's about three orders of magnitude too small for us to see. So we use the ALS. This is clearly not drawn to scale. This is the giant building. We take what's called a, um, a we use a beam line on it. So a path from the x-rays is taken off. We send it through our sample. The sample interacts with the x-rays. Essentially what it does is it scatters off some, and others are repeated because of periodicity in our sample. And that gives us a pattern. And in our case, we actually take patterns on two lane scales. We want to see how close the molecules are packed next to each other this way, which is actually this set of peaks. We want to know what pattern they're making in this direction. How are the red and blue aligning? There are a lot of different ways where red and blue can be separated from each other. We not want to know what the geometry is like. I'll show you in a couple of minutes, because the geometry really affects the way the photovoltaic performs. So we're going to get both of those length scales, um, basically using a patterning back here. So this is an example of what it looks like. Many, many of the things we design stack like this into layers. And those layers are very periodic. And what we see are repeat patterns that happen at integer multiples, so Q star, 2 Q star, 3 Q star, 4 Q star. And that tells us how thick the layers are and how closely they're packed together. We can make a somewhat small change in the chemistry. We just make one of the, the, blue, case, the blue, in this case, a little bit longer. And now we get these strips that are packed in and a hexagon. So think of them as like wires running through the blue matrix, right? And that gives us a very different repeat pattern in what we call the small angle x-ray scattering pattern. And that tells us a nanostructure. So now we're pretty sure how this thing is patterning. Now what we're going to do is put it between electrodes and try and figure out how the charges move through. What is the efficiency like? How well does it absorb light? So um, 
this is a picture of a bunch of the different things we can make. With the same polymer, if we don't allow it to self-assemble, if we cast it and we, and we catch it really quickly, it'll be completely mixed. We can pair that against one that's had just enough time to separate red from blue, but it's not really well organized yet. And we can then allow it to, to self-assemble a lot. You see from the top, this looks like a fingerprint pattern. Those are actually these hexagonal strips of material, and when you put them down on a surface, they like to align like the lines in your fingernail, in your fingerprint, right? So wires wrapping like this, if we cut them in half, you can look here. That's the end of one of those wires running actually parallel to the two electrodes. And then we can compare the way they perform, and this allows us to do the next design step of what do we really want to make. So this is the one, this green one, is the one that was disordered, and you see that this is this the y-axis here is the amount of current we get out. It has a lot less current. So that's telling us that having red and blue mixed together is a really bad idea. This blue one was our surprise. This was actually the one that was so well organized. We made this material so that it would self-assemble so nicely. And it didn't perform nearly as well as this one that had just been allowed to start setting up the interface of red and blue. The red and blue had just started to separate, right? Which is what I call short-range order, and it actually did a lot better. And that's actually an interesting point, because science is all about the surprises. In retrospect, it's really easy to say, well, of course, Rachel, this one didn't work all that well because the wires were parallel to the electrodes. You need the wires to run through your device in order to get charges through, right? If we'd known everything about this structure before we started, we would have known that. But we actually didn't understand the structure all that well when we started making devices. So now what we're doing is we're playing a lot of tricks to try and get the wires to stand up and help us get the charges out. And that's the next design rule. So we're always in this loop of designing new materials, using advanced light source to figure out what we've made, test the devices, see how we've affected efficiency, and then go back through again to make the next best device. So this is the kind of thing we do at the advanced light source. Um, I thought I would take just a second to tell you about how science works in my group and how we interact with ALS. So I'm a professor on campus. I also hold an appointment at Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And in many ways, working in my research group, is, and most scientific research groups now, is very much like an old world master apprentice style, right? So these, all of these guys are graduate students and postdocs who work on projects similar to the one I described. How this normally works is that they are getting their graduate degree by learning how to do research on these kinds of projects. I go out and look for the funding that pays their salaries and allows us to make the materials and do the research. And we write proposals to the advanced light source to allow us to use the x-rays to do these kinds of studies. And we're somewhat reliant on all of these steps working well in order to get science done. So we'll have some questions at the end, but uh, Axel, uh, will you uh, talk next? Great. Thank you. So about uh, next year marks the 100th anniversary of the discovery of X-ray diffraction by the Australian physicist uh, Lawrence Bragg. And it was such a big discovery at the time that he and actually his father got awarded a Nobel Prize uh, a few years later for that discovery. Now, 100 years, a lot of things have changed, uh, both in terms of how we actually determine structures by X-ray crystallography, but also in terms of the applications. Um, in fact, there, there are applications now that Bragg couldn't have possibly dreamed about, um, such as uh, because DNA, for example, hadn't been discovered and the importance of proteins 
involved yet and been fully appreciated yet. So I'd like to tell you today about the story of a medical application of exocrystallography. It's not my own work. It's actually work that I um, had the opportunity to observe um, by working with, with a, a startup company in the area. Um, but I think it's a very important example to tell you uh, what, what this methodology can actually accomplish. But let me start out uh, uh, telling you a little bit about uh, crystallography. Um, and I'd like to keep it as very simple. Um, the, the basic principle has been the same for, for many decades, actually. Uh, and it involves uh, crystallizing the molecule of interest. It could be a small molecule, a small chemical compound, or it could be a protein or a much larger complex up to the ribosome or virus. And then uh, one is illuminating that crystal with x-rays uh, coming, for example, from ALS. And then it obtains a diffraction pattern, which is what this uh, show is here. Now, you may ask uh, why x-rays in the first place. Well, if one actually uses uh, energetic x-rays or hard x-rays, then on, their wavelength is on the same dimension as that of atoms and molecules, so we can actually image those individual atoms with x-rays. That's why we're using x-rays for the study. Now, why crystals? Um, in principle, one could imagine looking at individual single molecules and just shining x-rays on them. Unfortunately, even with the most powerful sources today, uh, the scattering from a single molecule is insufficient to resolve it. That might change at some point in the future, but at least today, we still have to grow crystals, although tremendous progress has been made, and now we can actually do it with a few hundred nanometer-sized crystals, or tiny, tiny crystals, um, uh, but still they have to be crystalline. And the reason we have to crystallize it is that we're in those crystals, we have several millions of molecules, typically, or even more, that all sort of are arranged in a regular lattice, and uh, the x-rays coming from those molecules will uh, through constructive interference, produce a very strong signal from the molecule itself. So then one is collecting these X-ray diffraction data, and then there is an important step, which I don't have time to go into, which is called the phase problem, but I'll just tell you that it can be uh, overcome in most cases, and one obtains uh, an image of the electron density of the molecule uh, that comes directly from the observed uh, diffraction intensities. So it's directly calculated from those intensities using that phase information. And then once you have the electron density, you can then fit a model into this electron density, and that's what we typically call a crystal structure. Now, with such a model in place, one can then interpret the structure, and then typically that's not the end of it. One typically goes further, and for example, one is then trying to crystallize, let's say, a complex with a cofactor and goes back to crystallization. So this really is a sort of iterative process. Now, um, what has happened over the last uh, 20 years or so is actually close to an evolution in what we call structural biology, and, and primarily it has been driven by the availability of powerful new X-ray sources, such as the ALS, which produce these very powerful X-ray beams, much more powerful than in your doctor's office or 
than you could produce at a home X-ray source or at a laboratory X-ray source, I should say. And, and this, uh, this powerful X-ray beam uh, it means we can uh, collect the data much more rapidly. So it would used to take weeks, perhaps, or uh, days. Now can be done in minutes. And that means we can go through many crystals oops, uh, much more rapidly than before. Uh, and uh, we can also look at much more weakly diffracting crystals. I mentioned these very small crystals. Now, another advance has been in terms of being able to use automation uh, in data collection, and that's been very important. For example, people had to travel to this, the ALS from all over the world, and now you can actually do it remotely. You can uh, do it through the computer. You can control the experiment remotely, and that, uh, that has been uh, pioneered at ALS as well as at uh, uh, SSRL, which is the uh, light source at Stanford. And finally, also, there has been tremendous development in terms of computational tools, which now enable us to do much more reliable structure determination much more rapidly. And this is some of my own researches in this area, as well as the application to certain biological systems. Now, I won't tell you about my own research here, but rather tell you about the impact on structure-based drug design. So why structure-based drug design? Why, what was it useful? Why is it useful to know the structure of a protein when you develop a pharmaceutical? And, uh, well, it actually turns out that in the examples we, uh, I will tell you about, uh, uh, they actually have produced very powerful uh, compounds that probably otherwise wouldn't have been able to obtain. So, so that is just examples illustrating that having a molecular understanding or atomic understanding, if you like, really can produce uh, better drugs or drugs in the first place. Now, <clears throat> how do we do this? Well, once we know the structure, the three-dimensional shape of the protein, one can then uh, try to design a chemical compound that fits, let's say, a uh, cavity or, or a, uh, uh, a pocket in that, on a protein surface, and that will be the starting point for the drug discovery and uh, one can then either try to inhibit or activate the protein, and most importantly, by being able to precisely position the compound based on a structure, one is avoiding side effects because the compound will be much more specific. So that's the rationale using structure-based design. Has it worked? Well, here's some examples. <clears throat> um, there are uh, the uh, um, <clears throat> examples from the 90s are some, some of the early compounds used for uh, treating HIV were actually developed in conjunction with structure-based methods. And so, for example, the, the protease inhibitors' structure-based methods played a major role in the, in the lead improvement at that point, likewise worse than scriptase inhibitors. Uh, then uh, later we have uh, influenza drugs that were based on the structures that were determined of, of these uh, uh, virus proteins, rhinovirus drugs, which is a common cold, again, that was structure play, major, played a major role. Uh, this is a cancer, leukemia-related drug. Levec, again, structure played a role in the lead improvement. And the last one which I'll tell you about here today is a, is a new drug, which was just approved by the FDA, 
uh, a melanoma drug, and here structure actually was used throughout the entire process. So from the very early stages, from the screening stage all the way to the end, structures was used, which is really kind of unique among this entire group and really sets a new paradigm in structure-based drug design. So this is work by a local startup company called Plexicon, and, and again, all the credit goes to them and their uh, scientific staff. Uh, I just had the privilege to observe their progress while I was serving on their scientific advisory board. Now, so this particular drug, which again, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, um, aimed at uh, metastatic melanoma. Um, the first question I'd like to tell you is that why did they pick this particular protein called BRAF, which is a kinase, which is a sub it's a class of enzymes, and I will tell you in the next slide a little bit more about it. But for the moment, suffice to say that uh, there are many types of cancers where this particular protein undergoes a mutation. And, for example, there's metastatic melanoma. For 50% of the patients have a particular mutations in this protein. Uh, same applies to metastatic thyroid cancer, certain types of ovarian cancers, and a smaller subset, but still significant, of colon cancer. So, so that's why the company was interested in, in pursuing this particular uh, uh, enzyme and trying to uh, inhibit it. Now, why would inhibit, inhibiting this enzyme help? And so let me go a little bit more into the molecular mechanism, and I'll keep this very brief here. Um, this BRAF, which, which is a kinase, is involved in um, signaling pathways in cells, and more specifically, for example, uh, the cell constantly receives extracellular cues or cofactor that tell it whether to start dividing or uh, do other things. And uh, these signals are transmitted through a chain of proteins. One of them is the RAF enzyme until it actually reaches the, uh, the gene expression machinery. And so the RAF, what it does, it, it takes a chemical uh, uh, entity uh, called a phosphate, phosphate group and shuttles it to the next protein. And this, this particular phosphate group then uh, triggers uh, uh, the, uh, the next uh, protein to, in turn, uh, transfer to the next protein. So it's a chain of proteins. Now what happens in cancer is that uh, this protein... Uh, undergo, undergoes a mutation, and let me try this again, so that this pathway is always on. So it will basically keep phosphorylating the, uh, the next proteins, and it will lead to uncontrolled cell growth. So the idea in this drug development is to develop an inhibitor that binds to this protein and then disrupts this uh, uh, path and then hopefully stops the proliferation. So that's the, the basic idea. Um, so how does it work? Um, so what the company did was to start out with uh, uh, screening a number of small, very small compounds and determine crystal structures with a number of different kinases, including BRAF, but also others, and develop a sense for the chemical space that this kinase can bind to, or that, that can bind to the kinase, I should say. And they, they came up with this 
a relatively small uh, compound here. It's relatively simple. It has this heterocyclic structure here, which is related to the substrate of the kinases, ATP, for those of you who are, who are chemists. And, and this was the starting point for future drug, drug development. So this actually be able to crystallize. You see the structure here of this compound, how it fits into this pocket of the kinase very neatly. But you can also see there, there is some space here on, on all kinds of, in all kinds of different directions. So knowing the structure, you can imagine now attaching additional groups to the ends of this compound and trying to bind even better, right? So that's what they did. Uh, this now has a, has a higher affinity now, uh, and it's a little bit longer than the previous one. It goes more into this pocket here. And then the next one, goes even further into the pocket and has an even higher affinity. And this was actually one of the early compounds for this BRAF uh, mutant. And then the actual, uh, the actual compound that's now been approved is a derivative of that. It's uh, called vimorifenib, uh, and again, it was discovered by Plexicon. And there's also a reference here for those of you who want to read more about it, uh, article in PNAS. So the point here about using structure is that it was literally a matter of inspecting uh, the structure and uh, tinkering with the chemistry to come up with a more potent uh, inhibitor for this kinase. So now this clearly was only the first step, then it actually go, had to go into clinical trials. And that took uh, about, I believe, about four years total it went rapidly through the first uh, two stages, and it took a little bit longer for the third one. But in fact, this was early. They, they decided, FDA decided to early terminate this trial because it worked so well that um, really, at that point, it was felt that it would be important to allow the patients who were, who were on the control group, who weren't receiving the drug, now able to receive the drug and, and get some of the benefits from this compound. And finally, it was an uh, FDA approval just uh, a few weeks ago. And just to show you some of the dramatic improvements, this shows uh, uh, PET scans of patients uh, uh, before and after treatment with this compound. And the PET scan, what it does, it actually tells you, it tells one about uh, the, the degree on, to which the, uh, uh, the tissue undergoes uh, metabolic turnover and uh, because it's, it's related to glucose. So um, the brain, for example, being one of the most uh, glucose-intensive organs always shows up in these PET scans, but also what, what is visible are tumorous growths because they also have an enhanced uh, metabolic rate. Now, what was clearly visible after the treatment, many of these cancers grows regressed to the, uh, to the point where they uh, basically uh, shrank down to very small regions, and, and that was repeated in many other patients. So that clearly was a dramatic effect, at least for some period. And this actually shows, this is the last slide here actually, this shows now, this is the, the phase three trial data showing that there is uh, a significant uh, um, degree to which the tumors are uh, kept under check, uh, exceeding se several months compared to conventional chemotherapy, which is this uh, brown curve here. So 
uh, for, for several months, and it really, some patients actually go even longer. Uh, it, it keeps those tumors, it makes them smaller and also keeps them under control. And, and also there's a, there's a significant impact on the overall survival of the patients, and some of them keep, still keep going here. Um, so this slide now, what it shows really it's a dramatic development in, in, in treatment of melanoma. There really hasn't been anything else. I mean, this was really the, this chemotherapy was the only treatment available at the time. So this new compound now has a major impact. Of course, what you see, it's not a cure yet. So that's clearly there's more work to be done. But what this compound has done also is how, has opened up a new area of biology, actually, in, in understanding exactly what, what is going on, why is the, uh, the tumor able to eventually overcome uh, this, the effect of this compound. And, and the, I'm, I'm hopeful there will be many more developments. So let me close at the end. So this is an example of structure-based drug design. Again, this is all work by Plexicon uh, Incorporated. And, but they couldn't have done any of this uh, without light sources such as the ALS, which provided the, uh, the resource to actually image these crystals. And finally, Andrew, um, please take the stage. Thank you. So I'm at the Space Sciences Lab uh, at UC Berkeley, just up the hill from the Lawrence Hall of Science. And my uh, colleagues and I are interested in understanding the origin of our solar system. And I put the emphasis on our solar system. Uh, I don't mean to say that we're so interested in uh, the problem of the origin of solar systems in general, but really we're interested in our specific solar system, uh, partly because uh, it's interesting. After all, it has to do with our own origins. We're part of this solar system. But it also turns out that our solar system appears to be atypical compared to other planetary systems in our galaxy, something we've learned over the last decade or so. Uh, uh, there's been a revolution in discovery of planetary systems outside our own. So this is, uh, for us, a very fascinating problem to understand this. And the only piece of evidence to which we really have access uh, is the, uh, are the clues uh, about our uh, solar system, which are locked in tiny primitive samples of the building blocks of our solar system. These are extremely rare samples. Uh, they are very challenging in two ways. First of all, they're challenging technically because they're extremely tiny. They're typically one billionth to one trillionth of a gram in size. And the other uh, aspect of them which makes them really unique is that they are uh, literally unique samples, as I'll describe. And in fact, they're national treasures, uh, similar to the Apollo uh, uh, moon rocks. So this is a cartoon of the solar nebula as it appeared about 4.6 billion years ago. Uh, it was a disk, uh, a so-called accretion disk, of fine-grained solid materials and gas. And uh, just for scale, this is the orbit of Jupiter, or where Jupiter will be in this, uh, at this particular snapshot in time. The orbit of the Earth is about 20% 
uh, of that distance closer to the proto-sun. And there are these uh, jets coming out of the axes of these systems, uh, uh, of this system. And uh, lest you think that this is just somebody's, you know, cartoon made up out of, uh, out of whole cloth, this is actually a picture from Hubble Space Telescope of a planetary system forming right before our eyes. And here you see the disk, and you see these bipolar outflows. So we think this is probably what the solar system looked like. Now, for several decades, the best samples that we've had that contain clues as to those early times, the first two or three million years of the solar system's history, were locked in ancient primitive meteorites. These are fragments of asteroids that have been delivered to Earth. And uh, uh, the oldest of these have been dated to 4.568 billion years. The precision is amazing. It's only one digit uh, in the last digit, uh, one, I should say, in the last digit of that number. So an uncertainty of only a million years, which is amazing. And uh, these are uh, very rich samples. They have very fascinating properties. They're sort of like sedimentary rocks. They contain uh, solidified melt droplets called chondrules uh, in a matrix of black sort of fine-grained material. And uh, it's still not quite clear how these formed exactly. But one of the things that we do know is that they formed here close to the early sun inside the orbit of Jupiter in this hot region of the nebula. So everyone has recognized for a long time that these are not the building blocks of the solar system. They contain important clues, but they're not really what you want to get if you want to really get the original building blocks. To get those, you want to get material from at the edge of the uh, uh, accretion disk, of the solar disk here, in what we now call the Kuiper Belt. And um, uh, in fact, Pluto is the largest object in the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and it would be extremely expensive to, spend, to send a spacecraft out to the Kuiper Belt and have it come back. It costs many, many billions of dollars. Uh, so it's not practical to get a sample directly, but we're lucky. Because it turns out that comets uh, uh, that originate in the Kuiper Belt uh, sometimes make their way into the inner solar system where we can get access to them. And that is exactly what happened. Uh, with uh, a comet called VILD-2. So this is uh, uh, the first time that we have had samples from the Kuiper Belt. This is uh, due to a mission called Stardust. This is a NASA Discovery class mission that uh, used a two-sided collector right here. It's about the size of a stop sign or so. Uh, And in fact, Stardust was two missions in one spacecraft, an enormous bang for the buck. This was a very inexpensive mission on the scale of things. and was the first solid sample return mission uh, since the Apollo era, since the 1970s, and the first ever from beyond the moon. It returned the first samples of material from a known primitive solar system body, a comet I'll show you a picture of in a minute, and also the first samples of contemporary interstellar dust, that is, solid material from outside of our solar system, from the galaxy, ever to be returned to terrestrial laboratories for analysis. So Stardust was launched in 1999. Uh, There's a spectacular launch video I highly recommend uh, on the JPL website. Uh, And in January of 2004, the spacecraft flew through the coma of Cometville 2 at about four miles a second and captured dust uh, from the jets uh, emanating from the comet nucleus. So here's the comet, and there are jets of 
of uh, solid material and gas coming off of the comet. And then in January of 2006, this thing came back. And it landed in the Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah. Uh, I was very fortunate, along with uh, my wife and my two daughters and my mother, to see this come in uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning in the middle of a blizzard. Uh, but we, uh, it was amazing. The clouds parted, the spacecraft came in, and the clouds closed up again. It's quite, quite an amazing thing. Uh, everything went beautifully. Here's the sample return capsule on the ground. And uh, here is the collector tray in the clean room in Houston uh, at Johnson Space Center. It's the same facility where the Apollo moon rocks are curated. Uh, so what you're seeing here is a two-sided collector. This is the side that collected interstellar dust, and the side that all these intrepid scientists are peering at is the cometary collector. And we had to use a very unusual material to collect these samples because the capture speed was, as I said, four miles a second. That's actually rather slow on the scale of these things, but uh, uh, any normal material would uh, destroy these samples if they were hit at that speed. So we used a bizarre material called aerogel. Uh, it's only a few times as dense as air. I have a sample of it here. And I can't pass it around because it's pretty fragile. But if you'd like to come up after, I can uh, 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 show it to you. If I held it in my hand, I would not feel its weight. It's, uh, it's very bizarre, ghostly material. And it has the property that it can capture particles going at many miles per second practically intact. And this is one of the cometary particles here uh, uh, in, in the aerogel. It makes this sort of characteristic carrot-shaped track. And this is one of the first of these cometary particles to be extracted from the larger aerogel tiles. We extract it in a little thing called a keystone. It's a wedge-shaped piece of aerogel that contains the particle. You can't see it here in this picture because it's too small. But this was done up at our lab at, uh, at Space Sciences Lab. In a microscope, that's what, this is what one of these keystones looks like. The particle came in here. The cometary particles are quite fragile, so it broke up into numerous small fragments, which then traveled into the uh, aerogel. They were slowed down gently so that they weren't uh, damaged uh, significantly and, um, and, and uh, preserved. Nevertheless, this is definitely the most challenging extraterrestrial sample, uh, set of samples ever returned because these are small particles. Uh, they're buried in the aerogel and uh, terribly difficult to work with. But the point here is that we have actual samples. Most space scientists build instruments to go onto a spacecraft. They'll spend years doing it. And they have to make all kinds of compromises to build instruments. Uh, the instruments have to be lightweight, they have to be low power, and they have to be ultra-reliable, tremendously over-engineered so that they won't break. Because if, you, if they break in space, you've had it. You know, there's no way to repair them. And then the data come back by radio. But we have actual samples in our hands. This is tremendously important because it allows us to use the most sophisticated, up-to-date, and gigantic instruments available. The advanced light source is an X-ray microscope the size of a shopping mall. There's no way that you would ever fly that in space. We can also use carefully coordinated analyses, as I'll show you in a minute, using a variety of instruments. Uh, and so all of this, again, is something you could not do practically in a space mission. So we feel incredibly fortunate both to have these samples in our hands, but also uh, to, uh, to have the advanced light source in our backyard. It's been critical to what we've been doing. Uh, we go into our clean room 
to work on these samples. And even though it's been several years since this is, these have come back, we still can't believe it. These are samples which were captured beyond the orbit of Mars, and they're back in our lab. It's incredible. So we, uh, we are very, very fortunate. So we've been using the advanced light source to analyze these particles while they're still inside their aerogel keystones. And this is an example. This is chemical mapping. Uh, it's not showing up very well here in this light, but uh, you, what we're doing here is to analyze this, the chemical state of iron. Iron turns out to be very important to understanding the origin of these particles. We can distinguish iron metal from iron sulfides, from iron 2+, and iron 3+. Uh, and this tells us about the origin of these materials in the solar system. And we've, uh, we have uh, published in Astrophysical Journal on, on exactly these measurements. Now, let me, sh- let me now dig a little deeper. We've done a lot of different uh, analyses, but I'm going to dig deep into one of the particles that we've been working on. It's a particle called iris. And here's where it was originally in its track. It was named iris by my daughter, Laura, when she was seven, uh, she saw this picture, and she speaks a little Spanish, and she knows that that means uh, rainbow, and so she named it Iris, and that's, that is the name that's stuck. And we uh, have, uh, this is a map done at Beamline 1032 at the Advanced Light Source showing the distribution of iron, chromium, and nickel in this particle. Uh, and the chromium uh, hotspots here you see in green turn out to be very important to telling us about where this particle came from. This thing is only about 20 microns in size in its largest dimension, uh, but for us, this is a boulder. We can do an enormous amount of science on this, uh, uh, largely because of the capabilities of the ALS. So then we can take this particle, and in a complicated set of uh, steps, we can actually slice it like a loaf of bread into very thin slices, 100 nanometers or so thick, and these are analyses of sections of iris on a different beamline, 1102, uh, which is a unique beamline in the world. It's a tremendously capable beamline, and I will come back to it on the interstellar work that we've done. This enabled us to do mapping of the different phases of iris. And, uh, in fact, iris is a rock. To a geologist, a rock is an object which is a collection of distinct minerals. And that's what iris is. Iris is a rock. It's only 20 microns in diameter. Uh, But nevertheless, it's a rock. It has olivine, plagioclase, chromite, and other phases. In other words, uh, it turns out that iris is a chondrule. It's a very, very tiny chondrule, but it's chemically just like the chondrules that you find in these ancient meteorites that I talked about before, these little melt droplets that you find in uh, in these uh, objects. Well, that's bizarre, because these are melt droplets. That means that these had to be at very high temperature at some point in order to melt. They're molten rock. And yet this, these are samples that we found that we collected from a comet that, as far as we can tell, was never uh, warmer than about 40 degrees above absolute zero. So what in the world is something like that doing in a comet? Well, uh, this is showing us that the first few million years of the solar system was vastly more complicated than anybody ever thought. It was a thought that the solar system uh, formed in a fairly quiescent way in which the material would flow in towards the sun, forming the sun in the center, and that planets would condense out of that. Now we know that it's a much more turbulent, much more violent environment. Materials were being thrown out from the inner solar system, and it turns out very close, from very close to the early sun. 
not only can we tell that this has happened, that there's been this transport, we can say something about when it happened, which turns out to be very interesting. So using mapping from the ALS and then using an instrument uh, or a, a tool at the National Center for Electron Microscopy, which is also at LBL, called a FIB, a focused ion beam, and then using um, an ion microprobe, which measures isotopic abundances at, uh, with our colleagues at the University of Hawaii, we were able to measure the formation time of iris. We could tell, we could use, I should explain what that means. So we used a clock called aluminum-26. Aluminum-26 is a short-lived isotope of aluminum. It's got a half-life of a bit less than a million years. And you can use that as a clock to tell when something formed by measuring its, its, the abundance of its daughter. It's complicated uh, measurement. But conceptually, the idea is that you're using the, the abundance of this isotope as a clock. So we could tell that iris formed at least 3 million years after the beginning of the solar system. Now that in itself is fascinating because now we come back to Jupiter. Jupiter, when Jupiter formed, it prevented the uh, transport of material from the inner solar system to the outer solar system. It was like a wall that was put up. Well, we know that iris formed at least 3 million years after the start of the solar system. So it must have been transported from the inner solar system to the outer system, solar system at least 3 million years after, maybe longer, but at least 3 million years after the start of the solar system. If Jupiter were there, it would have inhibited it from doing that, and so Jupiter must have formed at least 3 million years after the start of the solar system, which is a bit of a surprise. And isn't it amazing that this 20-micron particle can tell us about the time of formation of the largest planet in the solar system? Okay, now let me talk very briefly about the interstellar collection of Stardust. And uh, uh, we are, I should actually back up a little bit. The, the work that I just described on IRIS is uh, going to be, well, we're submitting a paper to the journal Science tomorrow, as it happens uh, on, this, on this work. And this is the subject of another science paper, which is in progress, um, reporting on the discovery of four interstellar dust candidates. And we have literally uh, an investigation team of thousands of people, almost 30,000 people, only 60 of whom are professional scientists. And the, the uh, more than 29,000 uh, of our uh, collaborators are amateurs. And I'll come back to that. So uh, I actually lied earlier. I said that the cometary samples were the most challenging extraterrestrial samples ever returned. Actually, that's not true. The interstellar samples are about a thousand times smaller in mass, and there are only a hundredth as many particles, only a few dozen in the whole collection. So these are actually orders of magnitude more challenging than the cometary samples. Uh, nevertheless, we have been successful in identifying some particles that we think are interstellar and analyzing them using Beamline 1102 at the ALS, which is, again, unique in its capabilities. And uh, without 1102, we would not have been able to do this work. So this is a particle called Orion. We think that this is the very first interstellar dust particle ever returned for analysis to the laboratory. And using Beamline 1102, we can map the major rock-forming minerals, aluminum, iron, and magnesium, aluminum in red, iron in green, and magnesium in blue. We can say something about the chemistry of this particle by using a technique called Zanes, 
Um, and we can also use uh, diffraction to look at the crystallography, to look at mineralogy, what crystals are present. And what we find is that Orion is an aluminum-rich particle, mostly glassy, which is what we expect for uh, interstellar dust, but with uh, small inclusions of crystals, of spinel and olivine. Uh, and in this particular uh, particle, we looked for, uh, and, but did not detect, uh, organic material. In a different particle, we actually did. And I need to give credit where credit is due. We did not discover this particle. Uh, I should, when I say we, I mean the professional uh, scientists involved in this. It was discovered by a guy named Bruce Hudson, who was a retired carpenter in Ontario, Canada. And he discovered this track uh, using our distributed um, search tool called Stardust at Home. And uh, he was featured in a review article in Nature last year uh, on citizen science. So this is something that uh, is kind of a crazy idea, but it actually worked. So I'm just, I just have two more slides. I just want to put this in some context. Uh, what's the progress that we've made in viewing comets over the last few hundred years. This is the view of a comet in 1577 uh, appearing over the skies of Europe uh, with a spatial resolution of perhaps a million kilometers. And this is a view of comets in 2011. This is Iris with a resolution of about 10 nanometers. So it's about 19 orders of magnitude improvement in spatial resolution. And for interstellar dust, it's even more dramatic. Uh, This is the view of interstellar dust. This is the plane of our galaxy with the obscuring uh, uh, solid material and uh, this is Orion, uh, which uh, has as its largest dimension about uh, 2 microns and, again, about 10 nanometers spatial resolution, so 26 orders of magnitude improvement in spatial resolution, all enabled by the advanced light source. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we're going to take some questions from the audience, but I thought I'd get it started maybe with a few. Um, just to set the scale, you've heard three great scientists talk about their work. We host 2,000 scientists every year. They come through our door and they're doing experiments. Uh, not as great as these, but uh, still, they're, they're, they're up there. And we, and we do that because we run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we run 40 experiments at a time. So it's a big enterprise under the dome up there. But I thought maybe I'd start off with some questions, but try to look a little bit toward the future. So, uh, Rachel, we, um, I have a friend who put in solar a few years ago. It was $10 a watt to install, and, I have a, and, and she, she paid $10 a watt. And my new friend just bought solar and paying $5 a watt. Um, I know the government would like to get to a dollar a watt. Are you going to bring them there? Me particularly? Yeah. Well, you're doing <laughs> the basic science. You're doing the basic science that, that well, is going to enable this. Let's so. put it this way. I was shocked. I, I think I said this before. We were happily shocked to see those bus stops go up in San Francisco because we didn't realize that, one, that the materials, we knew Canarca was making them, that they were in scale that you could put on bus stops. We were surprised, surprised to find out they could power those displays. I'm an optimist. This was, I think we've made massive improvements for the last few years. And we're going to continue to do so. We just need to figure out how to do it less expensively. Mm -hmm. Okay. Axel, I have one question for you. Um, I'm a physicist, so I don't really understand biology. I think of it as balls and sticks. And you showed a lot of balls and sticks up there, which has made me feel good. Um, But I I always think about biology as there's structures and then there are functions. 
And the thing that connects them is dynamics, because life is dynamic. We're all dynamic, and molecules are dynamic. So you showed a lot of static pictures, but what's the hope for watching things work while they do their work? Is that part of the future? I think um, certainly that is uh, part of the future. Um, X-rays offer some opportunity here uh, using some of the new X-ray sources that come online or that are available now that use uh, pulsed X-rays where you can sort of uh, look at time-resolved events. Uh, but they're, they're probably more specialized experiments, at least at this point. Uh, but there are other imaging uh, tools uh, using optical imaging, for example, which allow one to actually watch things um, uh, much more readily, even um, watch things moving around in cells by using uh, appropriate optical labels. So yes, there, there is a, uh, the future is definitely dynamics, um, but it has been a hard uh, progress to, to get there. So our um, children will make movies of what yeah. you're showing, static pictures. And maybe. We do have a lot of computational tools, on the other hand, where we can simulate the dynamics and uh, that actually is, uh, is, is a, um, to some degree, we can sort of try to interpolate between the static images by using computational tools and mm -hmm. fill in the blanks with those uh, simulations. Okay, we'll follow. And Andrew, maybe one for you. Um, you've shown us that the universe is a dusty place. We know that the world is a dusty place, and I know we have other experiments at ALS where we track dust going around the world. We're all breathing each other's dust. Um, but is the universe, are we all breathing the dust of the universe and are we exchanging dust back and forth and maybe what are the implications of that for potential searches for life in the universe if there's really just dust coming off our planets and, and going back and forth? Well, first of all, I want to say I don't like the word dust. Okay. <laughs> dust is something you clean up at your house. Uh, these are really tiny rocks. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are uh, fascinated with the problem of organic materials. And we know that interstellar dust, and I'll use that term because that's what everybody else uses, uh, that interstellar dust uh, is loaded with organic material. Now, when I say organic, I don't mean that it's uh, necessarily produced by life. It's just that it is material with carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen. So we know astronomically that the, uh, that, that the interstellar medium is loaded with this organic material. And we've been very, very interested in uh, seeing if we could detect any. Now, in Orion, the one I showed earlier, we looked for and did not find carbonaceous material. But in the third of our four interstellar candidates that we're reporting, uh, called Merlin which was discovered by a, a volunteer in France, uh, and he named it also. Uh, it is a particle which seems to be coated in some kind of carbonaceous material. And I want to emphasize that all these analyses were done while the particles are still inside their aerogel containers, you might say. Uh, so uh, just simply getting these analyses is a tour de force of experimental work. Uh, but we have not taken any more steps to understand what that carbonaceous material is on purpose because we want to preserve this material. So far, it's unique. We want to preserve this material uh, for uh, uh, future investigations. And if we are careless, we will ruin these samples. We could. 
So we're being very careful. But I think this question of, of the origin of organics, which ultimately we inherited, all the in organics that make up us, we ultimately inherited from the interstellar cloud that went into making up the solar system. So this is an incredibly important problem, but maybe one of the most difficult ones that we face. Okay. Jeff, we, how, how would you like to handle the questions? Well, let's have uh, some folks come up to the microphones. We have one here and on the other side. I cannot believe a Berkeley audience is not going to have a question. Please. You know, a each year, all fifth graders in the Bay Area come to visit us at the ALS. It's part of our outreach into schools. And they're full of questions. <laughs> oh, here we have some takers. Um, I have a question. I was wondering, um, we're told all the time that like museum curators check lighting um, on specific objects in the museum to make sure that they don't deteriorate. But all of this research that you guys are talking about are about like high light intensity, cutting as thin as like bread slice cuts through nanograms. And so um, at nano spacing. And I was just wondering like, is it just about the time of exposure or is it about intensity or maybe this is a ridiculous question that all the scientists already understand but I could take it's, a, it's a terrific question for those of us who deal with soft matter because x-ray damage does happen to most we call it soft matter but plastics and a lot of biological materials can be damaged by x-rays so we spend a lot of time both attenuating trying to make sure it doesn't happen and also trying to minimize the exposure so that we can look at our samples before they degrade it's, it's a really significant problem in biology, and so what we actually do with those crystals, we uh, uh, cryogenically uh, put them to liquid nitrogen temperatures to mitigate some of the radiation damage that happens, and it actually, you can watch the crystal deteriorate in, over the course of the experiment. So, um, so it is an issue that we can address uh, to some degree, and, uh, and more in the future, we actually, uh, with even more intense X-ray sources, we just have one one shot per crystal. It's they're so intense, but we just we just take a lot of these crystals and piece things together in the end, and that uh, we're able to overcome that problem. So it is a problem, but it's it can be overcome. Mm -hmm. So maybe the the specific answer is that it is pretty much the integrated amount of light. It really does the damage. And if you want to do better than that, you have to take a really, really quick flash before it blows up. And that's the, way, that's the future. I have a lot of little questions. Um, you said it was soft x-ray. What if we shot some through my finger? It wouldn't go through the air. OK. Uh, hard x-rays, you can sit in your dentist chair and have the x-ray machine and do it. Soft won't even go through the air. It only goes in uh, a, a fraction of a, of a micron, typically. And uh, Andrew Westfall, did you say that our solar system is atypical? Yeah, it, uh, it seems to be, uh, both in the structure, uh, the distribution of planets, uh, and also in the isotopic abundance, particularly of oxygen. 
oxygen uh, appears to be anomalous. Well, the, it's funny the way that originally this was stated. It was stated that the galaxy is anomalous. Well, <laughs> it's actually the solar system, of course, that's anomalous. But the solar system seems to have a, have a different composition of oxygen than, than the rest of the galaxy, systematically. We don't understand that, although there, there are people who uh, have theories about why that would be. Well, do you mean other solar systems in our galaxy? Yes, that's right. Uh, and the other question for Axel Brunger, do all proteins crystallize? Very good question. Uh, the answer is unfortunately not. So there is uh, relatively small well, there's a significant subset of proteins that don't crystallize. Uh, and uh, um, now it's a matter of trying uh, in some of these cases and eventually able to crystallize it. And many, uh, sort of there's many sort of uh, groundbreaking structures where groups are working for sometimes uh, 10 or 20 years to eventually uh, crystallize it. So it, it is really... Uh, a very difficult problem, especially for some of the more uh, challenging biological uh, protein molecules and, and, and complexes. So, and, and there are some proteins that are intrinsically very flexible, and that brings us to the dynamics. And that's, they don't like to necessarily crystallize because they they're just uh, like to move around a lot. So, and so there's a class of proteins that are very difficult or impossible perhaps to crystallize. And we have other methods to, to look at um, uh, such proteins to get at least some information about their uh, conformations, but not at high, it has high resolution as uh, crystal structure. For those of you who remember, I remember as a kid trying to make rock candy with a string and a saturated solution of sugar, and it didn't work very often. So I'm very sympathetic <laughs> to Axel and his friends trying to crystallize something more complicated than sugar molecules. Hi, I have a question about the um, X-ray beam that you re referred to. Is that X-ray that is amplified in some way with mirrors and lenses, like a, maybe like a laser? I can take that. No, it, it's not a laser. Um, we're working on ideas that will make X-ray lasers, and there is one operating now at uh, Stanford. It's the, the first one uh, in the world in an X-ray one. But the light source we have now is just really, really, really bright. Uh, but it isn't the laser. And how big is the beam? The beam is actually, it looks like a laser pointer. Okay. It's collimated and it's directional. It's just not red. It's x-ray. And if you put your hand in front of it, you'd be sorry. Yeah, I bet so. <laughs> uh, so the applications that you've discussed have been, it seems to me, primarily about imaging. I was wondering if there are also applications for the light source that would allow you to directly manipulate or change materials. Ah, Rachel, do you, do you think about x-rays as manipulating your polymers, changing their chemistry? I haven't thought about it that way because of what I make, but it is possible to use x-rays to manipulate chemistry, right, and, you, and to change the way things are bonded to each other, which is a very neat application. It's some of how materials are patterned uses sometimes synchrotron, these kinds of x-rays can help you make nanometer scale patterns on surfaces. Right? And it's one of the ideas for making faster computer chips. 
One of our, uh, the biggest industries that we support at the Advanced Light Source is a consortium of all the computer companies, the Intels and IBMs of the world. They come and they do what they call pre-competitive research. They're trying to make computer chips that you'll use five years from now. Things that will continue to follow the Moore's curve of higher and higher density of computer chips. And they use the x-rays to pattern the material, as Rachel said. So then are these companies building their own x-ray sources as well, or are they presently exclusively coming here? Excuse me? Are they just coming here at the moment, or are they also working from your example to build their own x-ray sources? This industry or people in general? Yes, the industry. The industry uh, in the microchip business is exclusively coming here at this point. Um, So you said that um, you take the tiny thingies, um, and you cut them up. So how exactly is that done? That's a great question. So the first step is to, uh, is to uh, remove as much as you can the particle from the little aerogel wedge that it's sitting in. And then you embed that in a special epoxy, uh, which, is, uh, which hardens. That holds the thing in place. And then you use a diamond knife. And it's called an ultramicrotome. It's also used in biology. And uh, it will uses a special, um, very high-precision machine, which will slice off pieces of the sample. And then what's really elegant, and I don't know who thought of this, but it really is amazing that it works. The little slices come floating off onto the surface of a drop of water. And then you pick those up with a little specially designed loop and you take them over and put them on a grid, and you touch it, and it goes zoop, and the thing winds up, the section winds up on this little grid. It's like magic. I don't know who thought of it, but it works great. Thanks. It, it is magic. Sure, <laughs> Uh, yeah, there was a comment about uh, Stardust at Home uh, yeah. uh, for volunteers. How, how does that work? Is that something like that available now? Uh, it's running right now, yep. Uh, what we did was to use an automated microscope to acquire images of the aerogel tiles on the interstellar tray. And in each field of view, we acquire a, a set of images, about 45 images, extending over a range of focused depths. Uh, then this is uh, uploaded, these images are uploaded to the Amazon cloud. They're, they're, they host our data. And we've written uh, a virtual microscope that runs on any browser. And to use it, you slide um, your mouse up and down a little slider over on one side. And this focuses through these images. So it's just as if you're using an actual microscope, except that you don't get the crick in your neck, which you would get if you were trying to do it by hand. And, uh, and you focus up and down. The aerogel is transparent, and that, that's really important, so you can actually image the track. They're very, very subtle. They're very difficult to see. Uh, and uh, I think the final part of it that's really important is that we put in to the data stream images that we already know about. And so we can actually measure how sensitive or how efficient people are at finding uh, these tracks. So we take a very quantitative approach to it. And uh, so far, uh, we're up uh, to about 75 million uh, searches that people have done. Hi. Um, the question is for Rachel. I just was really curious about your research. And now that you've found that 
the polymers are, you know, lined up in a certain parallel form that that you weren't, you weren't ex or that you weren't expecting to be um, not as efficient. But what is the next step in your research now that you've seen um, that the perpendicular to the electrodes are more efficient? And just wanting to know a little bit more about that. So a lot of our work right now is trying to control it better, right? So this is basically this was the get what you get phase where we made the material and we cast it on a surface and it self-assembled, but it formed the direction we want it wanted to. And now we're developing a lot of tricks for getting them to turn around. So it turns out that magnets help them turn around because it's not really that they're magnetic, but they respond to having magnets around them. So we can turn them this way by putting them in big magnets. We actually have a magnet in the beam line at ALS right now, so we can watch them turn around. Um, we've also discovered... Um, I have a one-year-old, so I think a lot in toddler analogies. We do things that are a lot like Play-Doh. If we take our polymers and we squish them through extruders like you used in Play-Doh, where you're pushing the Play-Doh through a little mold, it stretches out the polymer chain as it goes through. And that helps us, helps us direct them into an orientation that we want them to, which is another one of the routes we're taking right now. Is it, are there things we can play with in the processing that gives us a level of control? Hi, I'm wondering if you have uh, done any research or uh, any investigations in terms of using quantum crystals and the crystal matrices for your research. Mm, I have not. Roger? No, I mean, most, the, the thing about x-rays is that they're typically not used in quantum systems like that. I think there's a lot of um, uh, quantum information and other research into systems like that. And they're, as you probably know, they're extremely delicate uh, when you create quantum states. They're not robust like uh, a microchip uses a voltage of, of uh, one, one volt or five volts or a zero and a one. And when you start to get into quantum systems, they're fairly delicate. And x-rays are fairly perturbing. And so no one's really made that mix yet. Uh, eventually, I think they will. But, but as of now, they, they disrupt the systems too much to see subtle quantum behavior. The second question is, how has the cylinder collapse, recent collapse, uh, what is your perspective on that? I know very little about Solyndra, um, partly because their technology was very different than the kinds of things I deal with. They were using inorganic materials and had some very neat ideas about both the architecture of the device and the way they were getting light into it. And most of my knowledge base is more on the plastic side, of which, which is actually much newer. Um, I didn't show it today, but there are some really neat plots on the web about how efficiency has changed with time for different kinds of technologies. And you've watched silicon go up very fast, particularly what we call Solar 1.0, which was in the 70s, and up towards now. Um, Cylinder was doing things called SIGs, and there's also one up on a different path. It's very interesting because the polymers have a very different slope. They were going up much faster because they're a much newer technology, which is why there are fewer companies available. So similarly, technology is going up faster, price is dropping faster, but our efficiencies are nowhere near comparable to everybody else. So it's, it's like comparing apples and oranges right now. Um, I can't even keep track of the prices in my own field anymore. I, you know, I make a philosophical comment. Uh, people might know that Solyndra was a company in the Bay Area that uh, was down in Fremont and, and was loaned about a half a billion dollars by the federal government and then last week uh, went into bankruptcy, which is a, sh a shame. Um, but I'll say something. I think 
most scientists would, would agree that failure is our middle name in experiments. That's not tolerated in a lot of businesses, and it's certainly not tolerated with government money. So we have a little bit of a disconnect there, but, but we, we thrive on, on things going wrong and the eventual one going right. As my students say, uh, the, the nice thing about having efficiencies really low is you've got a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> Um, this question is directed for um, Professor Brunger. I was wondering um, if there's any application for the ALS in neurosciences in determining um, certain aspects of brain chemistry, the dynamics of that, um, developing drugs. That's a good question. Actually, my, my own research is in the area of uh, proteins involved in uh, synapses and, and how uh, neurotransmitter is released. So we actually have used ALS to determine some of the structures or some of the key proteins involved in that process. And uh, so, yes, it is being used uh, in ALS specifically. We actually used it. Um, in terms of developing uh, drugs, uh, certainly with a similar, similar approach that I illustrated here today, uh, one could conceivably uh, develop uh, compounds that uh, act on these proteins. Uh, and uh, uh, that's, in fact, ongoing for some of the proteins that uh, are, are at the synapse. So, yes, it is being used. And um, I understand this is a very fundamental question, but could you elaborate on the difference between a protein and a neurotransmitter? A, a protein and? And a neurotransmitter. Okay, so the, uh, the neurotransmitter is, is usually a small uh, molecule, like glutamate is, is a much smaller molecule than, than a protein. So it's basically the size. There are uh, uh, small peptides that are also neurotransmitters, but proteins are generally, um, I think the smallest proteins are maybe uh, uh, 30 or 40 amino acids, uh, so they're much longer than uh, small peptides. So it's basically the length of the, uh, the chain that's the difference. And also proteins generally, with some exceptions, tend to uh, adopt a three-dimensional shape, which uh, we can then crystallize and, and determine the structure of. So what I understand is that the current research um, involving crystallization is kind of the forefront of um, the neuroscience as well. So would you just be crystallizing a lot of the neurotransmitters and determining the efficacy of certain drugs on those? It's not so much the neurotransmitters themselves because they're, they are relatively simple molecules and we kind of know what their conformations are, but it's the, uh, these, these larger proteins that actually uh, um, that, that control the process of releasing those neurotransmitters. And so they're, uh, they're again, the much larger uh, uh, um, uh, chains than uh, the individual um, uh, neurotransmitters. So it's the, the, the focus is really on these larger proteins and their complexes and uh, um, rather than on, on the transmitters themselves. Thank you. Hi, good evening. Um, what is aerogel? And can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the material science of it and the and consideration of the inertness and I guess, I don't know how else to phrase it, the viscosity or the, the material properties of that? Right. So aerogel is a solid material. Uh, it was actually invented in the 30s. 
uh, by a guy na- uh, at Stanford uh, who uh, was trying to develop a dry, solid colloid or gel and um, came up with a very clever way of removing the liquid from uh, or the solvent from, from the system. And it turns out to use the same approach as the, the uh, technology for decaffeinating coffee. So uh, aerogel is uh, chemically very simple. It's just silicon dioxide, so it's silica. There are other kinds of aerogels, uh, but the kind that we used on Stardust was uh, silica aerogel. And uh, so it's really uh, mechanically like a foam, except that the structure of the foam is only visible in a really, really good electron microscope. So if you're handling it, you can't tell that there's any structure at all. It just looks like a ghost. Um, Andrew, I once heard it described as frozen smoke. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah, that works. <laughs> and are you going to show it to people at the end? Yes. Okay. If anybody so, like to come up? Give you a piece. Okay, that wraps it up for the evening. Thank you very much, audience. Thank you, scientists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.